Namaste and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast, where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. Welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast, where we help make your spirituality an actuality and find more meaning, magic, and mindfulness in your life. I am your host, Kilkenny, who is an elite coach, yoga and meditation professor, priestess, psychic medium, astrologer, and I have trained over the past 20 years countless folks in spirituality and teachings. I am so thrilled to be welcoming relationship expert Stefanos Sifandos to answer the questions of how we can up-level our romantic relationships and what exactly healthy masculinity is within and without. So without further ado, welcome Stefanos to the Modern Mystic Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Well, it's wonderful to have you, and I can't wait to hear your answer to the first question I ask all my guests, which is, what does it mean to you to be a modern mystic? Oh, it's a great question. What does it mean to me to be a modern mystic? Trust is the first word that comes to mind, to trust in the mystery, to trust in the unknown, to delve into uncertainty, and to continue to apply courage in moments of difficulty or fear or despair and to really immerse into the magic that life can bring us by being open and curious to what life holds. I love those words, particularly that you used about having courage and curiosity. I think those are really, really things to highlight because sometimes I feel like people can view mysticism or spirituality even as more of perhaps like a passive thing or something that would just like, if you're lucky, come. But I always think of it as an adventure. And as you said, you really need courage to embark on it, knowing that there are so many ups and downs, like any relationship worth having, since we're talking about relationships, including our spirituality. So fantastic foray into this topic of relationships. I would love to start from the place of speaking about our unconscious tendencies and I've heard you speak about this on occasion, as adults to pursue relationships that really mostly unconsciously, sometimes we're conscious of this, resemble those to which we had with our primary caregivers and how that plays out. So could you speak about this? And let's let's jump off from there. Yeah, so much of what we experience growing up as children developmentally what we move through and how we interpret those experiences shape our adult lives. They shape our values, our belief systems, how we see the world, how we believe in ourselves, our own sense of worthiness, what we attract and repel, how we give and receive love, the fears that we hold within ourselves, whether it's a fear of commitment, a fear of rejection and so forth, fear of intimacy, fear of abandonment, you name it. And so understanding and connecting to, so understanding what happened to me as a child, what happened to me, where so much of what I was witnessing was being absorbed in a hypnagogic way 
meaning that I was taking all this information in through my sensory organs and making them mean something about myself at a very young age where I'm still trying to figure out the world. So what happened to me? And then understanding that and then connecting to the parts of us that needed something that they did not get. Did they need loving parents? Did they need compassion and care? Did they need to be in a safe environment, in an abuse-free household? What is it that you needed that you did not get? And you begin to give that to that part of your psyche, to that part of your being as an adult version of self. But you have to learn how to be healthy and regulated. And that's an entire process that we move through as adults to come back to the core of who we are, to come back to our joy. You know, my wife and I have a, we've been teaching in a child work for many years together and separately, but many years together. And we have a program called Journey to Joy. And it is about a reclamation of your joy, of your birthright, of your power, of your connection to yourself, of play, of fun. And in order to have play and fun and joy, we must feel safe in our bodies and we must be in a safe environment. And if we're not, we cannot access that fundamental human right to be in joy. So good. And so much of what you're speaking to relates to ancestral healing and these lineages we carry. Would you concur? Because I feel like so often when we start to do this profound work, as you alluded to, of really looking at what we did or didn't receive as children and then how that influenced us and currently does in the present day moment, a lot of those themes are actually ones that our parents share and then their parents share that have been passed along. Do you find that in your work? Generational trauma is a very real thing. So when we embark on a journey of self-healing, we often find that generations before us, our mothers, our fathers, our grandparents, family members have experienced very similar patterns or very similar pain or very similar trauma. And so when we begin to heal our own trauma and begin to make whole what feels fractured within our bodies, what often happens is our relationship to our parents, to our past, to our family, to our family lineage our ancestral lineage, it begins to shift and change. And so while we cannot directly change or shift the past, the past events, we can shift the relationship to it, which shifts our internal physiology and our relationship to those events. And so instead of activating or triggering anger and frustration and pain and and fear and contraction and dysregulation in our nervous system, we relate to it in a more regulated way. We can relate doing the inner work, exploring this in safe spaces. We can relate to it with greater compassion. Now, we're not bringing those dense, negative, heavy feelings into our current world. We're not bringing that into the lives of our children, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our colleagues, because we're lighter in our own constitution because we're doing our own inner work. And so the, the generational healing that takes place laterally, if you like, you know, past, present and future can be tremendous. Amazing. Yes. And I love how you spoke about your program with your beloved about the journey to joy, because even as an elite coach, joy is so much of what people feel like they're missing in life. And I feel like such a common denominational human craving that no matter what people are facing or matter what traumas they and their families hold, underneath it, there's that craving for that 
unlocking of that joy. Like it's such a fundamental human craving and a chasm of what people are wanting to experience and what one can experience. And it's, it's an incredible thing. I'm so curious about your own journey. And would you be willing to share a little bit about your own evolution into this work? I know I've heard you talk a little bit about your past and just curious for you what that was like being a young boy and then basically talking the listeners through how you came into this evolution of work and, and really embodiment of, of such an amazing depth and healthy masculinity. So growing up as a child, I felt very disconnected from my home and the people in my home. I felt very isolated and alone and scared. And I grew up in a volatile, violent family. Mm. So from a very young age, I developed a value of wanting to be safe and as a result of that, wanting to keep others safe, particularly in those moments, my mother, because, you know, I probably did see her as a victim in many senses of the word. And I also saw my father as a perpetrator. And so I wanted to protect my mother. And I also at some level wanted to protect my father from his own pain and his own suffering, his own anger and his own rage. And so again, from a very young age, I wanted to give and give and give. And that, that laid the foundation of deepening into this work, deepening into this at times service-based work and, and at times just really helping people understand themselves in deeper ways, helping them navigate their own trauma and their own pain. And, and from again, a very young age, I remember when I was maybe six or seven years old, I wanted to be United Nations Secretary General because in my mind, I had the idea that if I could be a leader of the United Nations, because I saw the United Nations as this global government, so to speak, or this global entity that led the world and looked after starving children and looked after those that were in economic despair and I could make a real difference. As I grew older, of course, I understood the geopolitical complexities <laughs> of the UN and other governing, quote unquote, governing bodies, but that's a conversation for another time. But I had this in me for a very long time. And so naturally I studied psychology and behavioral science and trauma and the nervous system and how our physiology interacts with our environment. And I continue to study, of course, but what we are really, I guess, made a dent in my own connection to self and embodiment and understanding was when I really stopped running from my own inner work by helping others. And that was my perception. So if I can help others and I can help myself, but I never was really helping myself because I was never addressing what was going on with me. And, and I would touch it. I would do that. And I was in the, in quote unquote, in deeper inner work from a very young age, in my teens, actually. But I'd only take myself so far. I would, I would never really touch the, the pain that I needed to touch. And, and I didn't know how, and I wasn't really held in a way that I could. We're relational beings and we need the support of each other. And so until I really did that in my very, very early 30s, you know, over, over a decade ago, maybe late 20s, actually, I really started. That's when shifts and changes started to occur. And, you know, the catalyst for that was being in a relationship and the woman that I was with, who I cared for deeply in that relationship, she discovered that I was unfaithful and there was infidelity in that relationship. And that really began a very complex exploration of myself and realization that I can't keep living this way. And it was unfortunate that it took that very painful experience for both of us to be that catalyst and I heard yesterday someone say, you have a plan, but God likes to laugh at your plan. You know, so it's all good to plan, but you plan and God laughs. So I find that interesting and found that interesting. So, you know, that was a catalyst for really a deeper propulsion into myself. And that's, that's when 
you know, I started to explore the substance of who I was and started to make very meaningful, tangible, genuine, authentic changes in my life. Yeah, that's such a profound story. Thank you for your authenticity and vulnerability with that. And with your parents, it's so interesting to hear you say, even with your father, you wanted to protect him. What an empath, even at that age you were, and that sense of your soul really already wanting to help support men, not only just, as you said, seeing your mom as a victim and obviously wanting to support her too. So I really honor that about your story and your path and where you are now. With and when it comes to masculinity, what would you offer in the way of tips and practical daily things that individuals identifying as male can do to help mitigate so much of the negative, toxic culture that we live in? Yeah, I'll very seldom tell anyone, any man, how to be a man, because I think part of being a man is, you know, figuring it out yourself. Like really, and I don't mean, I don't mean to throw, you know, us or individuals at the wolves or in the deep end, but I think that's part of the empowerment process to, to discover through an attuned, deliberate method. What does being a man mean to me? And what does masculine virtue or masculine, healthy masculine character and embodiment mean to me in my life, with my community, with the path that I'm on? Really empower men to give very deliberate, intentional thought to that. So that, that is insight into part of the, your question, right? The other part I would say, you know, some key components that have worked really well for me and what I see work really well in the world of men is Men need challenge. They need healthy challenge, whether that's physical exercise, whether that's challenging themselves to learn a new skill. That's really important challenge. Nature, being connected to earth, helps ground us into our own inner feminine and also helps us uh, be in deeper appreciation for the elements, whether the elements are wild or whether they're placid. But being in nature is, is so important for our own physiology. I mentioned challenge and I mentioned exercise as a form of challenge, but I'll, I'll mention physical activity as a separate note here. Physical activity is so fucking important when it comes to being a man and being in healthy masculine posture. And it is intrinsically connected to challenge, but it's more than just that. It's being connected to our bodies. It's knowing ourselves. It's demonstrating discipline through hardship. It builds confidence. It builds courage. It builds connection to self. And when we're more connected to self, we're less likely to hurt others or project upon others. Another point that's really important, again, that I've found in my life and that I see works really well with other men is men being surrounded by other men, not being isolated, not being by themselves, being able to carry their burden, not completely by themselves, but with others to share vulnerably and openly and to have trusted, respected, revered sources of men in their life that will challenge them healthily, but also support them with compassion. Another key point as well is really, it's not so much having a purpose, but it's understanding your trajectory, your mission, your vision, your purpose, your dharma, you can call it whatever you want, but being really clear on who you are in the world and how you're giving your gifts to the world. That leads me to my next point, being of service. And these are human constructs too, not just male constructs or masculine constructs. Deeply connected to the masculine virtues, this being of service, being of value. We, we as men, from an evolutionary perspective, 
require not from an ego, not from not from the ego, but we require ourselves to be valuable to our community, to the people that we love and care for the most. It's so, so important. There are some points. There are many others, of course. I will say one more thing, which is probably quite useful. Self-sustenance, learning to be self-sufficient. And you may think, well, isn't that counterintuitive to having men in your life? Well, it's both, right? So we want to be surrounded by other men that we trust. But we also want the capacity and the option to be self-sustaining. That's part of the self-discovery process and the inner knowing process. And I'll say one last thing. Do the inner work. And this is a human thing. Do your inner work. Men need to be more aware of themselves. They can discover that through challenge, through being in the elements. They can discover that through other men and being in men's groups, forging or forming your own men's group, joining another men's group. Really be active in this space. And of course, educate yourself, learn about who you are, read, meditate, breathe, whatever, whatever, you you know, become a Buddhist doesn't really matter whatever you do, but find discipline that is your own spiritual practice. That's part of the inner work. And when a man has a regular spiritual practice, he's more grounded in himself. He's less volatile. He's less erratic. He's less sporadic. That's fucking powerful. Yeah. Wow. That answer was so profound. I feel like you, we could just print out the the words you just said and you could have a handbook and make a New York Times bestselling book with just that. I mean, <laughs> I you, appreciate no, it. I've never actually said it. I've it, never actually said it like that before. Yeah. Well, and, and this is the thing I, I love because you were like, well, I don't really want to, you know, share or tell men how to be. And everything that you responded with was exactly not that as was your wish. Yet that was such a helpful framework. So listeners can go back, right? And, and on repeat to share, okay, these are containers. Cause to me, I just saw all these different containers. And as a, a person who identifies as female, I was even checking boxes as you were saying them and getting excited for my own healthy masculinity that lives within me. Because that's another way of working with and understanding these paradigm, so to speak, and these archetypes. So I thought as a, as a woman, that was actually really helpful. Like I was getting excited listening to you. So for the female identifying listeners, you can think about in that way, right? Because we're trying to develop and, and cultivate all these energies within ourselves and create balance within those energies within oneself. I loved how you talked about particularly men holding space for other men, because that's something that in my work with my own clients, a lot of men in my experience feel so isolated and don't have that. And they know they need to do that. And yet a lot of men say, well, where can I do that? You know, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't have time to do that. I feel like that's one that's really hard for men. So I really want to highlight that. Do you recommend any particular spaces online? Do you have groups for that? Meaning for men holding space for other men? I've seen you know, lots of things in person, but I'm curious if you have recommendations online. Sure. There are many, you know, man uncivilized is a, is a men's, men's group, man talks, Connor Beaton, uh, Trevor Baum is man uncivilized. Empowered Brotherhood is is something that I've co-founded as well. MPB that is. There's Sacred Sons, the Mankind Project. That's a more old school that was was forged and formed in the seventies. But there are many men's groups out there that can support in 
you know, helping men really see another version of themselves and feel supported through hardship in life. Yeah, amazing. I have a client recently and I said to him, look, make it a practice once a month. Reach out to some man in your life. And he was amazed after three months because he was like, all these guys that I know, they were lonely too. You know, they were feeling isolated too and just going on their way. So it's it's really profound. One thing I wanted to ask you about, because I, also in my experience working with male clients, is about checking out the tendencies of men to check out and pornography. Because this is a shadow, I feel like, even in spiritual sectors that just isn't spoken about. Meaning, you know, I've been a yoga studio owner. I've been working one-on-one with clients forever. And it's something that years in often comes into conversation and starts to creep out. So could you talk about this and really bring it to the forefront, either your experience with this? Yeah, pornography is a tricky subject and there's intrinsically nothing wrong or vile (laughs) around sexual intercourse and sex and the sacred practice of sex or the primal physical, physiological practice of sex or those both combined and much more, the emotional, the psychological, the physical, the spiritual, the relational nature and component to sex. It's when it becomes objectified, it's it's when it becomes exploited at mass, it's when it's depicted in unrealistic terms such as mainstream pornography, that it hijacks our dopamine receptors and dopamine pathways and skews rather our version of reality and what we think is real. And so (laughs) it's very easy for not just men, but people in general to go to mainstream pornography. It's very convenient. It can be very quick. There's no rejection. There's no woman telling you, oh, I don't like your penis or I don't like your body shape or you're not helping me orgasm. There's always guaranteed pleasure or virtually always guaranteed pleasure. There's a plethora of fantasy that can be indulged, but it gives off the unrealistic expectation that that exists as something that's quote unquote normal or common in the world. And it's not. Porn stars for the most part are actors. They're acting right? Um, Some of them, for sure, I mean, just from a mathematical probability perspective, some of them are enjoying themselves and it's very intimate and real for them. And I would say the vast majority or most of them, no, that's not the case. So it becomes very transactional. And, you know, we quote unquote know that it's a transactional process. Those, Those stars, those actors, stars, those actors, they're getting paid. Would they be there doing that if they weren't getting paid? Maybe not. So it's transactional. And I understand transactional. I came from that world. I came from the world of prostitution prostitution in so many different ways. And so I get that. And this isn't a judgment. This isn't a uh, criticism. It's really helping us understand what it does to us internally. It pulls us away from our partners if we're watching pornography, especially if it's in secret. Now we're cultivating and developing habits around secrecy, around being in the shadow, around not being honest, not being in our own integrity. Because you could be in a relationship and have an agreement around, oh, yeah, we watch porn. We watch porn together. We watch porn separately. It's completely okay. That's the agreement we have. It comes from a healthy place, et cetera, et cetera, right? cool, you've got an agreement, it's great, but most people don't have agreements for starters in, in any agreements in their relationship and very seldom do they have an agreement around, oh, I'm allowed to watch porn or I have, I have the blessing of my partner to watch porn and, and here's in the ways that I do it. Like it's not very deliberate and intentional. It's usually, oh, I, I feel a lot of pain in my life. I need to 
quick fix of pleasure. Masturbation, ejaculation is one of those things that can give me that food is another, drugs is another, adrenaline is another, you know, status in the, in society is another. You know, you pick your poison or your poison, your combination of poisons. And porn is very, very accessible, as is food, right? It's just very quickly accessible. And it's done in secret, so no one knows about it, so no one's going to judge you, no one's going to hurt you, no one's going to criticize you. Food as well, like, is one of those things too. Like, no one's going to, comment really on you eating and you can secretly eat if you want. It's just we are living in a world where convenience reigns supreme and we don't get out of our comfort zones and we become compliant and complacent and porn feeds the the weakness in man. It feeds that beast of weakness. We all have it and it's okay. There's a saying, you know, hard times create strong men Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. So good. It's fucking brilliant. I love that. And I think very accurate. Yeah, it's really, really, really profound. And just speaking to what you mentioned earlier too, I think it's tied into the theme of pornography, which is people not knowing or not learning how to regulate their nervous systems. And as you said, using things to anesthetize themselves or numb out, check out instead of going underneath what is it that they're craving and or avoiding, right? What pain are they trying to mitigate? Like you said, particularly for men, it can be really an opioid for the masses and and we have to be so careful. And, you know, there's this edge, I feel like in spirituality too, with pornography and then eroticism, and then obviously ways to be connective with your partners, right? There's a continuum, so to speak. So perhaps you could share, please, when it comes to relationships and partners, how we can move towards more viewing sex as an act of sacredity, as an act of connection. So what are ways that we can start to tiptoe more and more towards that, even with our mindset, even with our intention, whatever it is that you offer If you want to make physical intimacy and sex sacred, you have to prioritize it and you've got to do your inner work around it. You've got to be honest. You've got to communicate to it with your partner. You've got to know what you want and desire. You've got to want to know what your partner wants and desires. You have to understand your own fantasies, your own limitations. You have to want to understand the limitations and fantasies of your partner or partners. You need to do, and come back to this, you need to do your inner work. But you need to clear any any shame you have in your body, any blocks you have in your body, any abuse that you've experienced needs to be cleared out. And it's not necessarily you're not necessarily doing that by yourself. You can do that in partnership. Actually, partnership can be very healing for that. But you've got to be aware of it, and you've got to be willing to be open to speak to this and communicate to this and express your truth and your needs and your desires and your boundaries, and really prioritize physical intimacy in that way. And then and only then can it be a sacred practice, can it be something of meaning and substance and actually help you grow and grow out of something that no longer serves you and into something and someone that does and including being you know, a healing anchor point for your partner. That doesn't mean you're going to do the healing for them. It means though that you can be an anchor point, a safe space. Like Ultimately, we want to create safety in partnerships, safety in sexuality, safety in intimacy so that it can be sacred and it can be expanded upon. Like We can go into the mystery of sexuality and relating in that way. I love your answer so much. It's elucidating. And I loved how you spoke of 
which is really profound and something to highlight, not doing it for your partner, because sometimes I think that's common that we can get into that, you know, and that's where obviously we start to walk the lines of codependency, right, of the importance of doing the work separately. But if you're in partnership or even, you know, polyamorous kind of situation with your partners, really taking responsibility and being the captain of your own ship for the work, but then also treading that beautiful dance of cheering the person on, being a person's mirror, right? Doing that kind of reciprocal supportive work while not trying to do the work for them. Do you see that in the work that you do with couples and people in various relationship structures that one person will try to do more of the work for them and that dynamic? I do. I do. Uh, It's actually interesting. I do see partners wanting to take away the pain of their partners. And of course, at some level, that's very natural to be compassionate, to not want people that you love to suffer and to be in pain and to hurt. Where it gets difficult is that partners will try and fix their partners or fix their problems or they'll become enmeshed in their pain, which is the codependency that you mentioned earlier. And from that perspective, it becomes very difficult to maintain healthy, sustainable relationships because we're coming from our own projected inner unresolved trauma. And when our trauma is unresolved, we often project it into relationship and intimacy. We don't know what to do with it. We come from reactive places within ourselves. We're defensive. We lose so much of who we are. And so the option that we have, the option that we have is to somehow untangle, and the somehow is where the the substance is, but to untangle from the codependency and to go deeper into the posture of how can I support my partner when they're on this journey and and how can I grow from this? What's in this for me? Mm. So I can grow with my partner. And if I'm growing with my partner, I can be a stronger support for them, but I can also be a more clear pillar of truth for them and myself. And this is the dance of partnership. Yes, that's so good. Because I'll have a lot of clients who it's almost like they're really wise and they'll get out the PowerPoint presentation for their partner and be like figuring it out and helping, right? And we can't do that. And I love how you spoke of also how what am I learning in this process of being the supporter? Because that immediately takes you out of the space of the protagonist of the story, hopefully at best, (laughs) and puts you in the sideline space of the supporter. So that's a really, really helpful technique. Where does narcissistic tendencies fall into this? I mean, it's such a buzzword these days, but often I think in those codependent relationships and when thinking about relationship, I have a lot of listeners who are empaths, you know, who are psychic, who are sensitive, who are all the things, you know, in the spiritual world and can be attracted to the narcissistic personality. So can you talk a little bit about that, please, and, and how to spot that and how to work with that? Most empaths and very sensitive individuals, highly sensitive people, HSPs, which I believe is around 20, 25% of the population are going to be attracted to the narcissist that you're speaking to or the narcissistic archetype or the individual that holds those narcissistic tendencies that you're speaking to. A very flamboyant, grandiose, arrogant, overconfident, very selfish, gaslights, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason why those individuals are attracted to each other, that narcissist needs 
the empathetic fuel for their very fragile ego. But it's not just a fragile ego, it's an unresolved wounding. Yes. It's a deep trauma that is unresolved within that individual. I have a lot of compassion for narcissists or people that have very strong narcissistic tendencies and it's very fucking frustrating as well at so many levels, right? Especially when you're in close proximity to people like that. And so they need each other. The empath, often the highly sensitive person, the empath that has their own unresolved trauma and wounding is going to come to the relationship with codependency. They're going to need someone to help validate themselves. So they're going to need the external validation. And that narcissist or that person with the narcissistic tendencies, strong narcissistic tendencies, is going to need that undying love and commitment and devotion, but in unhealthy ways. They're going to need people to manipulate and have power over and control over because that gives them their sense of inflated self-worth, but it gives them their sense of control and their sense of power. And so until we really break these patterns and that empath says healthy boundaries, and the narcissist or the person with narcissistic tendencies, and if they're a genuinely full-blown NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, having that self-referential frame is very difficult. Being that level of self-aware is very, very challenging and, and more unlikely than likely. But what the, the role of that individual is, is to really work on themselves, of course, especially around their unresolved trauma, where their power was given away or taken from them, or they lost their power, and really learning not to manipulate and gaslight and control others, but to create their own internal locus of control, right? To feel safe in their bodies again. That's a challenge for individuals like that. Though. Yes, yes. That's so great and really pithily put on a very complex topic. So thank you for that. Boundaries for the empath, a highly sensitive person, and really working with one's own power as a narcissist and being mindful of how they're exercising power or not over others and healing their own trauma and power issues from chances are when they were young. Beautifully put. Can you talk about some tips? And I'm curious, even in your work, if it comes up a certain number when people stop being in the honeymoon phase, so to speak, in a relationship. Because I've noticed in my work with my clients, a lot of people kind of have a number, meaning I had a client recently, he was like, it's always nine months. It's always nine months when he starts to feel X, Y, and Z with people. Some other people, you know, it's a different number. But I have noticed kind of with a lot of people, there's some people have like a pattern or number where that honeymoon phase starts to wane. And so I was wondering, please, because I think that's normal, human, and actually a good sign in relationship, in my experience, when you notice and pay attention, oh, that's shifting. And I think when you're with an in-long-term partnership for a long time, as I've been, you go through cycles of this, like you actually start cycling through, like, oh, we're kind of back to a different, it might feel different than honeymoon phase, but it's still like a, it can be a more romantic phase in one's relationship. And then... There are other times where, you know, it's arduous and it can go back and forth. So do you have thoughts and wisdom and practical tips for when one feels their relationship starting to wane in the way of the, the romance and the honeymoon phase feels like it's wearing off things that one can think about and work towards? The honeymoon phase is a natural part of the evolution and the growth of a relationship. And it's different for everyone. Some people may find that you know, at the six-month mark or the 12-month mark, regularly 
throughout their historical connection to relationships, that's when the honeymoon period or the limerence phase wanes. And that could be a combination of their own physiology interacting with their environment and their own psychology. And it, it's a belief that they now just have, which basically becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and so forth. But either way, the, the honeymoon period is meant to wane. And that's not to say that deep intimacy can't come back or excitement and the spark of sexual union and connection can't come back. It just means that it's going to come back in a different way. And that's part of the growth for you as people. So I believe one of the reasons, one of many reasons we come together as people is to grow through our pain to grow through our traumas and to help each other, support each other, heal, right? Not just our traumas, but the patterns that no longer serve us. It doesn't have to be traumas, acute or chronic, can be patterns that no longer serve us. And so part of that is seeing the whole person. When you see the whole person, you have a different view and vision of yourself through the lens of that person and of that person and the relationship, of course, as well. And so that's when really the deep, deeper inner work begins, the self-exploration begins is when that honeymoon period wanes and, and that phase begins to shift, largely because we need it to, right? We, we can't have the rose-colored glasses on anymore because we're seeing them, our partner, and the relationship through a polarized lens. And if we want to be in you know, really authentically, genuinely deeper polarity, sexual polarity and sexual union, intimate polarity, we have to see the whole of that person. And this is when we start to learn deeper about acceptance, aka our own Mm self-acceptance, worthiness, compassion, care, curiosity. We start to cultivate different tools and strategies and techniques and practices in the relationship that make us ultimately a better human, that make us a more robust human at the very least. If you don't want to put a value judgment of better, that's fine, but it makes us a more robust human. We carry greater range now. So now, during that process, as you're getting to know each other in very new ways, it can build, it can kick up frustrations and pain and anger and big, heavy emotions. How you treat each other during that process matters. How you remain in intimate contact during that process really matters. How you have agreements and communication, conscious, healthy communication really matters. How you give yourself space and time really, really matters. Mm-hmm. How you still have fun separately and together really fucking matters. So this is where it's the, the relationship is asking you to be more deliberate. The relationship is asking you to be more present. And the relationship is asking you to grow out of what no longer serves you. So from that place, if the honeymoon period never wanes, we're never going to grow into a greater version of ourselves and out of a version that never serves us any, that doesn't serve us anymore. And we're not going to be that supportive pillar and structure for our partner. Yeah. Fabulous answer. Really rich, really eloquent. You could say, oh, do you want to stay three or four years old, you know, before your it is developed in your whole life? For a lot of people, especially when you're so little, like babies, even if they have terrible suffering trauma around them, there's still a lot of joy in them. But like, do you want your relationship to stay like that forever? And it's like, no, like maturation is exciting. And what I hear you saying is a lot about staying connected. Like even when you're angry, like I just kept hearing the subtitle of like, oh, like, this is a way to be have connection. This is a way to have connection. When you're talking about compassion and other qualities, one can develop like a muscle more in relationship to help navigate those times. I also love how you cited about the importance of the togetherness and then the separateness and finding joy and adventure and meaning without your partner as much as you're connected to your partner, right? That autonomy is so huge. What would be one thing that people would be surprised about you who already know about your work? 
because I feel like you're a pretty high profile dude. And I would just love to hear something that might surprise the audience or, or just something that maybe you don't share on a lot of your interviews and, and, and such that is just a tidbit, a juicy thing. Um, I swear a lot. <laughs> I mean, I can get really frustrated and really impatient and really angry really quickly, like zero to 100. I still have that tendency and propensity in me. What is one go-to way that you work with your anger? You know, like when you feel the anger boiling up and thank you again, and I feel like that's a very masculine uh, energy that a lot of men deal with. You know, what is your number one touchstone then? What do you do? Yeah, so when I feel like I'm going zero to 100 and anger is really rising to the surface, one of my go-to strategies is I will physically take a step back from wherever I am. If I'm seated like I am now, I will get up and I will take a step back. So I'm removing myself from the energy of that posture and then I'm going to breathe slow. I could have a length and exhale practice or I could do a, a box breath. I may put a gentle nurturing touch on the nurturance canal in the frontal plane of my body, so chest and belly, navel, and I may breathe for a little bit. And then from there, I may ask myself some questions around the validity of what I'm feeling. How do I really want to express it? I want to make sure I'm not projecting on someone. You know, I'll start to in- intellectually and emotionally go into it, but not before I've really gotten into the body. So yeah, so good. that's a, that's that's one process. Another thing that I may do as well is I may start like really categorizing the emotion. And what I mean by that is like really identifying what am I feeling? Is it frustration? Is it anger? Is it rage? Is it something else? And then signing a color to that and it's like seeing where I am. Am I really, really close to blowing my top, so to speak? Or am I am I on the lower end? Like what am I really, really feeling? And getting getting very clear with that in my own body. Very vivid, really helpful. Because I think that again in spiritual circles and self-help circles, right? That's another shadow, like pornography, like anger, you know. So and that was really profound. And I loved how you talked about working from the outside in. Because I think a lot of times you think, okay, anger, and like, I'm going to start spiritually, or I'm going to start psychologically or psycho-spiritually, a lot of us, right? But I think your wisdom is so spot on. No, start from the body if you have that tendency. I for sure have that tendency, not tons, but like when I go zero to 10, which is rare, like it's pretty fast. So I always too work with my body. And I think that's really wise. I think that's brilliant, actually. I'll say one more thing to that as well. I think it's very important for me personally, is I'll also physically exert the energy that's associated with the sensation. So if that means going down to my gym and hitting the boxing bag or doing 50 burpees where I'm at, I want to move the energy as well. If it means stomping my feet, if that means screaming into a pillow, I want to animate the sensation through either sound, physical movement or breath. But I really want to deliberately animate the sensation of whatever I'm feeling in order to have greater mastery, not over it, but be in greater relationship with it so I don't project it onto my partner or to the people that I love or it doesn't leak out in other relationships or frustrations in my physical environment. You just came up with the ABCs. I love it. Animate, breathe, contemplate. Let's do it. Coin that. It's really, really good. And it's so true. Like with me, it's like push-ups. Okay. Like sometimes I'm like, okay, I'll pause. I'm going to be right back. I'll go to push-ups, you know, and I feel like I'm in touch with my healthy masculinity, but I think that's brilliant when one thinks about masculinity is, is about really being very, very physical. Because I think sometimes with men, particularly, if they can 
get through, like you said, the anger, right? Move through and grow through the anger and do that physically, then they can find the words. You know, so often women clients I have is like, why he's not talking about it. And the females often want to talk and get to their feelings. And I think a a lot of that key for the men is, oh, I got to first get the anger, that layer off so I can even feel what I'm feeling. And I can even think about my thoughts where often women jump to like, they just want to talk about their anger. They want to talk about, you know, the thing. So that's really, really, really helpful. You talked about agreements. You've said that word several times now. And I'm just curious, you know, when you talk about agreements in partnership, you had alluded to earlier, like a lot of people don't have agreements, but with your agreements, and you said it in another context as well. What do you mean by that? And what are, say, like the top three agreements you think people in a committed relationship should discuss? Themes of those agreements, perhaps. Yeah, so great, great question. So maybe I'll start with what agreements are. Agreements are predetermined arrangements that you have in a relationship. You're really just sharing with each other what works for you and what doesn't. How do you want to do conflict? How do you want to do life? What's the evening routine like? What's the morning routine like? How do we want to do and talk about money? And how do we want to be with money? How do we want to raise our children? Whatever your values are, your agreements are speaking to the things that are important to you in life. How do we have fun and play? You know, what does physical intimacy look like for us? You don't have to have agreements on every single thing, but it can be helpful to have agreements on the things that really matter to you so that you're not left disillusioned if your partner behaves in a particular way. You have a reference point and an anchor point to come back to. How we forge agreements is through conscious communication, meaning that you're very deliberate with that. You may have a date night, one night per week or one session per week, whatever you want to call it, or you, you go for a walk once a week where you just talk about your agreements and you talk about things that are important to you and things that matter to you in the relationship. Um, but you set time. It could be once a month where you go on this on this big day date and you talk about all the things that are important to you. You, know, you. you may do a money date. Part of that is a money date and part of that is a intimacy date. You speak to the agreements and things that are important to you. You track each other. You don't have to have spreadsheets and things like that. You can just say, hey, how, how have I been as a partner this month? You know, how have I been as a partner this week? Or is there something that you need from me that you're not getting? Or And you'll you share the same as well. Like really being honest, radical honesty and transparency is at the core of any agreement. That's so good. And I love what you're speaking to because you're talking about a practice. That's so much about what I talk about in these podcast episodes, different practices you can do. And so you're really offering a practice with a partner that you can do or your partners. And the beautiful thing about making it a practice as opposed to a Google you know, sheet, which you could do you know, as well if, if you're that type, if you have a Virgo moon or something. But what you're talking about then allows room for growth, allows breath and space and width for it to evolve, to create, to transform. Because in my mind, long-term relationships that last, they change, you know, and if you're paying attention, your partner changes. And that's why it's interesting. And so that's really, really brilliant what you said. Well, Stefanos, would you mind concluding our conversation with either a benediction, a one-minute centering, a breath practice for a minute, just something that's embodied? Yeah, for sure. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. So why don't we all do a vooing practice? So the vooing practice, I'm not going to explain it too much. We'll just get into it. I'll just show you. I'm not going to explain the symbolism, but rather just show you what it is. So you'll, you'll inhale through your nose, you'll purse your lips, and you'll make a vooing sound, and I'll, and I'll lead us off. And you'll just exhale for as long as you can, and then once you've exhaled for as long as you can, 
just pause, slow down, don't breathe for a few seconds, and then just begin to nasal breathe and just feel what's happening in your body. So it will look like this. There you go. Really, really profound. I felt like my whole energy, psyche, like everything just dropping down like a waterfall. What is the ideology and psychology behind that? Because I have to hear. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I read that many years ago from Dr. Peter Levine, and essentially it's a nervous system regulation practice. It's to help your vagus nerve inform your your brain, your amygdala, that you know your body is safe to move you into a parasympathetic nervous system response. And again, you know, as I dug deeper, it's Dr. Peter Levine didn't come up with this, of course. It's an ancient old uh, mystic practice from Eastern traditions and, and I'm sure Western traditions as well, yoga and the like. And so that vooing sound is like a foghorn. Foghorn is the calling bringing you home to the dock and imagine the, the, the foggy night is the complexity of life at times and the ship that is you is making your way back to the dock, back to home, right? And so it can be a, a really beautiful practice for just calming and, and regulating and self-soothing. Mm, I love that. It's so much about that V sound just because you mentioned yoga. Mm has to do with VAM, which is the seed mantra for the second chakra. And that's the chakra of sexuality, creativity, and your relationships. So it's it's very beautiful to, to offer that sound. And I love that description. Thank you so much for that. Well, Stefanos, you are such a brilliant thought leader. And where can people find out more about your work to help them really continue learning about transforming themselves and themselves in sacred relationships. People can find me anywhere on social media at Stefanos Safandos, mainly on Instagram, but yeah, definitely Facebook, uh, TikTok as well, actually. I'm really sort of everywhere per se. So at Stefanos Safandos, my website, stefanosafandos.com. If you want to work with me, coachwithsteph.com. And my wife and I have an amazing inner child program that I spoke to earlier, Journey to Joy, and that commences on the 29th of February, I believe. You can look at that at christinehassler.com slash joy as well. And that's a really beautiful 10-week immersive understanding our core patterns, ourselves, and you know the, the pains and the traumas that we've experienced and that we keep harboring that block us from experiencing joy and beauty and wonder in the world. Sounds amazing. I don't know if you know this in the yoga tradition, they're called the rasas. They're the main flavors of life that are the way that the ancient yogis prescribed as working with your feelings and what to seek and what to go for. And we spoke of anger, which is one of them, you know, so it normalizes. It's like, oh, anger is healthy. The ancient yogis knew this. And one of the other eight is joy. And so I love that hasya. It's called hasya joy. Beautiful anchoring and centering because to me and the way I think about life and my own spirituality, like people will say, oh, I want happiness. I want happiness. or I want peace and I want peace. And to me, joy is the blending of 
peace and happiness. You know, when you put them together, mm. I think I think of joy that way. Yeah. And so I, I love my cat's middle name is Hasia Joy because of that. So I love that your program. That. People should check that out for sure. Stefanos is offering our monthly members an amazing feminine breathwork practice. Do you want to plug that or say anything about that? Because it looks like it's ongoing. Yeah, it is ongoing. I completely forgot about that, of course. Yeah. Every month we gather together the breathwork for the feminine. You know, women from over 50 countries. Last month we had over 700 women that joined. So it's live in person every month or every month live in person. It's like every second month live in person, but every month we do do this live. So it's live in person and live streamed and recorded. And it is a beautiful three-hour somatic practice that includes breath work, uh, live coaching, support, embodiment practices, connection with other women as well. For the feminine, it is a, it is a beautiful – we've been doing this for over a year now. It's a specific structure, my, my wife and I. I and mean, she, she always comes when we can get support for our little one, of course. And then we have other facilitators there. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful practice. The next one is virtual only. It is February 26th, February 26th, 6.30 to 9.30 PM CST. You can sign up at stefanosofandos.com slash feminine. And that's virtual only. And the theme for this month is really dropping our armor and softening into intimacy. Mm. And that, that practice and the power of that practice as well, which I think so many of us, you know, myself included, you know, fear of intimacy, softening into intimacy, dropping the armor, it's it's a big one. And then in March, we're going to do a co-ed. We do a co-ed, we open it up once or twice a year. So March will be in-person and live stream co-ed. That's going to be really powerful as well. Love that. Oh, we should make those co-eds take over the world. Huge. Love that. And our yeah. members get a discount on that. So they'll, they'll be getting a gift of a discount and he's offering it with his beloved monthly. So whenever you listen to this, even if it's years to come, because that's what happens with the episodes, check it out. Chances are he's still offering it. So thank you so much for that. And all of my monthly mystic members are amazing. We appreciate your support so much. If you're not a monthly member yet, go to modernmystic.love and check it out because you get an incredible, elegant platform, over a hundred yoga alignment-based videos, meditation videos, mystic hack videos, astrology videos, how to manage your energy videos, how to create boundaries and all the things we talked about today. A lot of those things you'll you'll get tips and, and short tutorials on. So modernmystic.love for the membership. Stefanos, thank you so much again you. for your presence, for your generosity, for your vulnerability, and really your groundedness. Really, I feel from this conversation as we're speaking such a rudeness and such a real connection to everything you're saying. And I can just feel that you're really walking the walk. And that's a really amazing way to be a teacher in this world. It's the only way in my mind to be a teacher in this world. But I think that that's a more rare thing, particularly in a male embodied form. So thank you for that. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And here's to having a more mindful, mystical and magical life, everyone. Until next time. Namaste. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you use. It is so appreciated. Also, check out my website, modernmystic.love where you can find information about my very exciting monthly mystic membership. My members have unlimited access to a robust video library, which includes short videos that are easily digestible. 
sharing practical ways to integrate mystical living into your day-to-day life. These compelling videos cover topics such as how to ground, protect, and grow your energy, how to develop your psychic abilities, how to connect to your spirit team, shadow work, inner child work, tarot cards, lots of Western astrology, of course, in addition to syncing up with the rhythms of nature and so much more. I've gotten so much positive feedback that these videos are game changers for folks. Also included in the membership are over 100 alignment-based yoga classes of all different levels, meditation and breathwork classes, so you can work from the inside out or the outside in and up level yourself as you become the next version of you. Not to mention my mystic members get all sorts of bonus content and discounts from my visionary podcast guests. So check out modernmystic.love and take a peek there as there's a free sampling of some videos waiting for you. Lastly, if you are looking for some conscious conversation and compelling community, check out also our private Modern Mystic podcast Facebook group. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste. Namaste.